Hello and welcome to Greta's Generation Podcast. This is your host, Kyle Herman, at University College London Global Governance Institute. A special thanks to our sponsors. It is UCL, but specifically, we have obtained for the second season the Strategic Initiative Seed Funding Grant from UCL's Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences. So many thanks for that and sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to Greta's Generation Podcast. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you Catalina Spataru, a professor at USL, which is also the university that I currently work at. And it's very exciting because this season we are showcasing the great work that researchers are doing at UCL. Catalina will describe to us some of the wonderful things she's done with climate change governance, sustainable development, sustainable development goals under the UN, and as well as the UK and what they're doing at the country level and preparing for the Glasgow 2021 Climate Change Summit. So without further ado, I introduce to you Catalina Spataru. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me to the show. Such excellent topics you cover. Yeah, I think we'll get through as much as we can today. I'm cognizant of your time, but I just wanted to start with maybe you can briefly review your career, your career path and so forth, because as I did tell you, we are interested in conveying to the younger generation some interesting types of careers and research things that can be pursued to help climate change. So why don't you give the audience a brief overview of how you ended up in your position now. I started first with computer science and mathematics, and then I got involved with journalism, where I was uh, contributing to some uh, writing for younger generation in different topics, including topics about what we should do to change the way We tackle problems, global problems, but also interviewing different people from different areas. Then I continue with mathematics. I knew that if I'm going to improve my skills in mathematics and computer science, in programming, and as well in physics, then I will be able to do modeling and scenarios analysis, and then I can understand exactly the numbers behind all the scenarios and then to do my own analysis. I've been also working on various areas, interdisciplinary approach, very much started with analysis of um, gas explosions following releases of natural gas from low and high pressure pipelines and assessing the risk of those to people behavior in buildings and how we can reduce energy consumptions through monitoring systems based on real-time location sensors to modeling energy systems, particularly balancing energy demand and supply, analyzing the potential of interconnections and energy storage technologies, and then moving towards energy, water, land, materials nexus, which we call it resource nexus, and more assessing the trade-offs between 
resource use under different climatic conditions. I'm currently a professor in global energy resources, as you mentioned. I'm also the founder and the head of UCL Islands Laboratory. And it's a unique initiative designed to explore and assess sustainability solution for island nations in a circular economy under different climatic conditions. And the vision is really simple, is to create a world where everyone can achieve a better quality of life, an inclusive global environment for those living everywhere, and particularly of the vulnerable communities. I think that's a good start for the audience. So we'll help them digest a bit of these if we can unpack a few one at a time. And I do want to get back to the, the Islands Laboratory later in the episode here. First, perhaps we can unpack two things just as briefly as possible. These real-time sensors, supply and demand for energy. And then quite related to that is this energy, water, land and resource nexus. What do we mean by that? And what sorts of research tools and measurement tools do you employ in order to test your research questions? Recently has been a lot of debates about increasing an interconnected natural resource consumption, waste and governance. And this is really framing the terms of a resource nexus. So we define the resource nexus as a set of context-specific critical interlinkages between two or more natural resources used in delivery chains and systems. The nexus approach allows the analysis of interlinkages between the sectors in order to understand synergies and effectively manage trade-offs. And there are significant opportunities to, to synergies can arise from such interlinkages. And the work I've done with my team is very much looking at water energy nexus, for example, for Brazil or other areas where they face water shortages. Also, we looked at water energy land and the trade-offs between this or water energy materials through use of technologies. Understanding the resource nexus requires interdisciplinary approach. It requires really an understanding of interconnections between resources and different disciplines together to be able to highlight the gaps and also to find ways to find solutions. By interdisciplinary approach, would you mean combining a political science with economics with a hard science or what do you mean exactly by that? Absolutely, absolutely. Combining really science, like you, you need to combine economics with law, with mathematics, with computer science, with physics, with, with everything, to be honest, to really get a very good understanding of uh, complex problems which stands behind the resource nexus concept. And system thinking is really key because in general terms, the natural resources serves as direct or functional inputs for the socioeconomic systems of provision, either for production of another input, for general production consumption purposes, or, or for the build environment. In this respect, the main resource interlinkages between 
these five essential resources and how this provides a basis for societies and systems development and looking at those interlinkages, some may be more obvious, more obvious in the sense like they have a directional connection between energy and water, but others become more critical during periods of rapid increase in the use when sticking to typical silo approaches without assessing the availability of core inputs from other resources, such as materials needed for for energy production. So something that we did is to introduce different layers, which illustrates, for example, value chains from nature to consumers for each of the resources. And layers gives, for example, one of layer gives categories for the primary production of the respective natural resources. The other layer adds the social economic supply systems based on such resources. And then is another layer which adds the dimension of recycling and reuse and inputs from secondary resources, which are essential for uh-huh. resource use efficiency or circular economy or more sustainable use of resources in general, but also to understand how you need to handle the trade-offs between resources in case of disasters, for example. Thank you for all that information. I would like to shift gears to corporate strategies and then get to this big question of risk and disaster risk reduction. It's your choice which one to take first. I think it's easier if we uh, go for the corporate strategies and talk about the circular economy there, and then we can talk about risk, and then we can look at risk from the corporate point of view or also from the governance point of view. And feel free to expand on this, but it's just a starting point. I did enjoy reading your paper, Corporate Strategies for Circular Economy, a comparative study of energy companies. I'm conducting quite similar research right now, extracting data using some natural language processing on corporate sustainability reports. So this is a topic that I'm highly interested in right now, but also it's a topic that has moved up the ladder, so to speak. I think since Paris 2015, the enthusiasm for the corporate sector responding to what needs to be done for climate has grown precipitously. There is still a question about, is this just a lot of talk without much walk? But that is an entirely separate question. I don't know if we'll be able to tackle here. But why don't you just start us off with explaining that paper, and then we can branch into the risk reduction thereafter. How we started is, effectively, we looked at the circular economy concept. And we try to understand how it's considered as an approach to ensure sustainable development and minimize environmental impacts of economic activities. And we wanted to understand the implementation in businesses, which really appeared in its kind of infancy stage. So we decided to explore the literature on the integration of circular economy in the business strategies and do a case study analysis of selected companies. We analyzed like 14 companies and we established a number of rules there. We selected those who have electricity production as core business activity, who had quarter location in Europe and participation to the UN Global Compact. We look to see how they engage in multiple businesses activities besides power generation, such as energy management services, gas sales, electricity trading, the green certificates, power purchase agreements, and so on. And to understand the integration of circularity in their strategy, 
to what it covers and how it's coordinated across the entire scope of their activities. And sustainability measures in the energy sector have focused on the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Right. However, other sustainability pressures such as material resource depletion, waste disposal, and water scarcity also involve energy companies. For example, regarding environmental sustainability data on emissions of greenhouse gases, sulfur oxides, nitrogen oxides, particular matter and waste and water consumption, we extract all this data from corporate reports. Mm. However, what was really interesting is those data do not provide support for in-depth comparative analysis because of the diversity of methodology and scope. Not many apples and apples comparisons across exactly. the company. Exactly. <laughs> it's a I problem. Can, absolutely. I can give you an example. So greenhouse gas, gas emissions from category of the greenhouse gas protocol covers indirect em- emissions so like business travel, upstream purchase fuels, purchase electricity sold to end users, purchase gas sold to end users, goods and services, equipment, infrastructure, waste treatment, and so on are some just examples. But the calculation differ following several aspects, as activities included, methodological approach for emission factor used, and the same goes for water and waste data. So some companies report water withdrawn and consume for operations only, while others expand the coverage. It's really sometimes like trying to compare apples with oranges. (laughs) Right, right. I've seen that some researchers have, for example, divided the scope emissions by revenues or some other business metric. That sort of seems to work. But then you have the problem, I think, that the same company the next year could report a bit differently or use a different auditor or publish their metrics somewhat differently. Do you find that as well? Yes, indeed. What we really need is a systemic approach. But we need first to understand how it works, what these companies are working, and how their methodologies are working. So I think we need a bit more transparency to us to really understand and do a bit more research in this area. Yeah, that will bring us to this next talking point, and then it will bridge us through to the to the risk to talk about the risk. There are these two, well, they call them non-state actors. They're climate initiatives. Some have called them the Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosures and the SBTI, Science-Based Targets Initiative. I'm quite sure you're aware of these. So these two initiatives are meant to help the corporate sector report on their progress on climate change specifically on emissions and on the the potential future risks that will come from climate change, be they physical or regulatory risks. So perhaps you can just comment on those two and then we'll we'll get into the the talk about risk reduction and what that means from the corporate point of view and then as well from the country or sector point of view. Science-based targets is not a science-based approach, are basically asking everyone to trust them to do this assessment. 
in my opinion, without revealing the methodology that these companies use, it would be really difficult to understand the science behind it. And what is needed is some additional emphasis on the transparency and not using the science to guide these targets. Through science-based targets, companies are prepared to disclose this information required. And then the recommendation on targets as the requirements for both will be aligned, but companies must calculate emissions, for example. They need to select a baseline and the target year, and then they need to show the progress towards meeting it. So they can choose any target year and baseline that they choose, which is reflects precisely the, the NDCs, the National Declared Contributions under the Paris Climate Agreement, doesn't it? Yes, this is my understanding. So I think what is really missing is a clear guidance of how they should do it, but also a level of transparency and forward thinking of long-term planning, which aim of both of these initiatives. And if this will be put in place clearly, then will maximize to be more ready for policy and legislative changes and also increase investors' confidence in the company commitment to tackling climate change and managing its associated risks. The TCFD, for me, it was having trouble. I was grappling with, okay, what does this really mean? If a company, if it discloses or declares that, yes, it faces some climate risk, they have some of their offices near near the ocean that they might have to move inland or something like this, just not quite sure what that really means, even for an investor that's interested in making a sustainable investment. There's much enthusiasm around the TCFD, and I just can't figure out why, because at the end of the day, disclosing climate risk can mean anything and also doesn't mean that the corporation will actually change anything, does it? Yes, you're absolutely right. It's So my understanding about TSFD is has the kind of mandate to develop climate-related financial risk disclosure for use by companies in providing information to investors, lenders, insurers, and stakeholders. But companies are being called to disclose information under different key areas, such as governance, strategy, risk, management, and metrics and targets, if I'm correct. If they disclose that, especially like metrics and targets, which is related to science, then it would be interesting to compare the metrics and targets across companies and then to understand more what could be improved there. So I think there are some positives there, (laughs) but in practice, you are absolutely right, there's in terms of trust of investors into companies which will provide a higher risk, I think this needs to be a little bit more explained, to be honest. How will be the criteria, for example, what kind of criteria they should follow, what is expected to disclose in terms of information along their targets, is the type of target, is the time frame, is the key performance indicators, or is the approaches to calculate the targets, or what exactly? I'm not really sure, to be honest. So we'll move on to the risk reduction, and then I want to save some time for the talk about AI and ML machine learning at the end before you wrap up. With respect to climate change, what is disaster risk reduction, 
And then this follow-up question is, why has it not really received too much attention in the literature and why should it? Disaster risk reduction, I will define like the process of protecting the livelihoods and assets of communities and individuals from the impact of hazards. And the hazards can be natural or human derived. Climate-related risks are created by a range of hazards, and some are slow in their onset, such as changes in temperature and precipitation, which leads to droughts or agriculture losses, while others happen more suddenly, like tropical storms and floods. And disaster risk reduction limits the negative impacts of these events by working to reduce their size, strength, and often building the capacity of people exposed to these hazards to anticipate, survive, and recover from them. But they are influenced by lots of factors, like policies, population demographics, and climate change. Risk can change through time as well. So different communities deal with risk in different ways and are exposed to different hazards in different ways. And from what I've seen in most countries, you can get an understanding of which areas are likely to suffer, for example, from droughts or flash floods. But this doesn't really tell you the site-specific details needed. For example, when a certain river is likely to be flood and what is the degree of that. So there is a lot to be done, to be honest, at the community level, but also to tackle the problems needed to performance community level risk analysis from identification of all hazards that may happen, analyze vulnerability and capacity, and what government, community, and other institution could do to limit this risk. It's been already done quite a lot in this area, but it's still a lot to be done. And disaster risk reduction is really everyone's business because it involves every part of the society, every part of the government, every part of the professional and private sectors as well. You recently wrote in a published article, we concluded that conventionally policymakers develop risk assessments and response plans through unsystematic processes and focus on a limited number of indicators and indicators is, is the key word that I would like to focus on. So can you just speak briefly towards this? Yes, indeed. We are working now on uh, disaster risk reduction resilience uh, for coastal cities and islands. So in risk assessment and planning, indicators typically include technical measures of weather patterns, infrastructure status and demographics, while the social indicators for community resilience are a bit overlooked there. In the post-disaster allocation of resources, indicators tend to focus on cost and benefits while neglecting processes, measures of uh, democratic legitimacy of decisions uh, of justice and human rights. Such conventional government approaches to the use of indicators of disaster risk reduction resilience lack the transdisciplinary expertise and they have challenges, the challenges being even greater in developing countries. So what we need is resilience indicators related to distributive and procedural justice concerns in disaster management. And most of the laws focus more on the response and recovery strategies and lack recognition of risk reduction strategies. 
the Sendai framework, as well as other frameworks, define the inclusion of risk reduction activities and strategies in legislative documents through themes that include the provision of early warning systems, provision of community education and public awareness, improving building codes, low use planning, and so on. But the literature on resilience underlines the need for a resilience theory that enables decision makers to engage with questions of equity. And the key elements for equitable resilience are based on recognizing inclusion and representation, working across scales and transformative change. And here is where we can come up with our research trying to combine quantitative with qualitative analysis and uh, stakeholders' engagement processes. There's a lot of enthusiasm about AI, artificial intelligence, and ML, machine learning, how we can leverage these tools for climate change research, which uh, you have done recently and um, you expressed that they are powerful. However, they need to be used with great care. So perhaps you can just speak briefly to what you've, how you've used them. And then I think that ties back to the quantitative, qualitative mixed methodology that you just mentioned. In my opinion is we need to re-energize the scientific approach for the governance of disasters to do climate change for sustainable development. And the research we do as a consortium will come with significant intellectual merit. So as global supply chains are increasingly interconnected so that when a disaster, of course, now impacts ripples across countries and regions as well. So we should think globally and act locally and leaving no one behind that. Very often we hear that. But to do that, we need to gather some evidence-based strategies to avert, minimize, and address loss and damage. So research primary focus in climate action is to prevent negative climate impacts with the fact violent states or coastal cities. So, for example, the climate justice is an area of research that frames climate change as a political and ethical issue, but not solely as a problem underlying environmental change. So there are many complexities and uncertainties we need to deal with. So what I thought is that by crossing disciplinary, institutional and geographical boundaries, then we could bring some valuable addition to planning capabilities because we can enable effective collaboration to ensure discussions leads to actions with engagement of stakeholders in different locations, in islands and coastal cities. Then we can provide a more holistic view of alternative options combining artificial intelligence with machine learning, with natural language processing, and as well with concepts of resource nexus concepts and also to create adaptive governance approaches where to imperatively include equitable disaster risk reduction resilience. And that will enable also more dynamic interaction learning across the research partners and stakeholders. So from the analysis we've done so far, there are three main areas where we think that decision makers could pay more attention and efforts. And the first one, I would say, is inclusive governance by creating governance processes and tools that support sustainability and equitable disaster risk sharing, retention, financial protection across global supply chains. 
The second one is the normative institution approach, which involves diverse stakeholders and with one direction of legal principles. In other words, we need to adapt current legal principles and legislation and to understand how they work and to adapt also the current resilience plans because none of the sector security and resilience plans seems to account for justice and equality aspects. And the third one is to establish equitable resilience standards by framed from a perspective of equity. So this is very much what we try to do by including researchers from different disciplines and to provide more an understanding, a broader understanding of the disaster risk reduction resilience. And we focus primarily on floods, heat waves and droughts. And we expect short-term, long-term and mid-term impact in the sense like short-term impacts arising from the research outputs and engagement with stakeholders and collaboration partnerships. In terms of mid-term impacts will come from the use and application of our toolbox we, we are working on and the methods and techniques between different partners and also for long-term to provide appropriate training and dissemination through capacity generated through partnerships. That's a nice uh, synopsis that you've given us. Well, I'm cognizant of your time, so there are a few questions I'd like to wrap up on. However, I give you a chance to quickly um, self-promote if you'd like to and uh, speak briefly about your research lab and if there are any PhD opportunities or uh, if you want to encourage some students to follow up with you, this is the time to speak about that. There's always a need for uh, help and uh, more research to Bernays. Our laboratory, my laboratory, really studies, focuses on uh, solution for adaptation to climate change and disaster risk reduction and to accelerate the circular economy. We are coming from different different disciplines. So we, I have in my team engineers, economists, lawyers, from all different disciplines. And we want to understand the social connection between energy, water, land, materials, and food and environment, and understand more the interaction of people and technologies, understand more what we can do to improve governance of disasters, especially on islands and coastal cities, which are mostly affected by the sea level rise. We also look at energy sector in depth, already have a couple of tools which develop. I also develop a Nexus tool, which my students are using not only in their research, but also in their coursework. So we cover quite a broad range of uh, topics related to islands and to really understand uh, resource nexus, people behavior, and the effects of existing policies and future policies that will support different islands transition to renewable energy hubs, or we do also engagement with stakeholders. A wide range of topics because we are okay. an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary group. That's great. I'll put some notes in, in the show notes that if anyone would like to follow up and learn more about the lab, they can do so. That will be on the website, greatestgeneration.com. So now I just have a few final questions for you that relate to the younger audience, which uh, this podcast targets, as well as other listeners that are interested in climate change. 
So the first question is, if you knew the wonderful work and accomplishments that you have attained in your life at 18 years old, what would you think? You need to follow your dreams. If you have your dreams, then you need to find ways to achieve your goals in life. And there are many ways to achieve your goals in, in your life. And I would say primary is skills. I knew from an early stage of my life that if you are well equipped with, with a range of skills, such as computer simulations or programming skills or analysis or data analysis and so on, then all of these skills could help you to effectively understand various problems. And then at some point you could uh, extend to our disciplines and so on. If I will look back when I was 18, I would say what a great life and <laughs> what a great uh, career path. Um, yeah. And I would definitely like it to follow. <laughs> but I have to say that you need also to put a lot of efforts and time to pursue your dreams. It's not only like working from nine to four. It's uh, much more than that. Yeah, I think that's, that's a very good piece of advice. What advice could you give to our younger listeners who might be now anxious to start their career and are very interested to make an impact on climate change? I would say follow your dreams. Don't be afraid to learn and every single problem have a number of solutions. As I mentioned, skills are really important because you can't really tackle any problems without to do it yourself. And once you try to do it yourself, you'll learn much more. Everything will become more clear. So in other words, uh, don't be afraid to get your hands dirty, in other words. That's great advice. And Dr. Catalina Spataru, thank you so much for all your time and we'll share all the links to your work in the show notes. So thanks again. Hey, thank you very much for the invite and I wish everyone uh, good luck with your career. Thanks for listening to this latest edition of Greatest Generation Podcast. I would direct your attention if you'd like to find out more information on this episode or any other episodes to greatestgeneration.com. Last quick note, thanks to the UCL's Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences Dean's Strategic Fund, which has again sponsored this second season. Hope to see you next time.